Welcome to another episode of Trees and Lines. Our next guest was a real treat. We sat down with Pam Roach, VP of External Affairs and Economic Development for the U.S.'s largest utility. Pam's perspective on good corporate culture, renewable investment, and Nextera's innovative approach were a few of the topics we covered. Have a listen. Hope you guys enjoy. excited today to uh to record uh our second podcast and uh and we're we're really excited to have uh pam roach join us from uh nextera flora power and light uh she's the vice president of external affairs and economic development pam welcome thank you Glad yeah to be here. super uh super pumped um so pam I, you probably don't know phil uh but phil charlton uh is my partner in crime on this on, on this on this podcast and um, you know, we, uh, as, as we talked about a bit offline, um, we're trying to tackle, um, you know, discussion topics and, and interesting things that are happening in the utility industry and, and talk to a variety of stakeholders across the space. So, uh, we were super pumped that you, uh, that you decided to join us. You have a very interesting lens and we look forward to kind of diving into the discussion today. So, um, Pam, maybe for our audience, you could kind of take us through a brief snippet of like you know, your life at Nextera, how you got there, you know, how your career evolved to the executive ranks. Love to hear that. So I'll just start by saying, well, my career probably is not uh, what you would expect from someone in the energy industry. Um, I think it's part of our company's success. And I think a lot of people here, while they don't have a similar path, they, they, everyone has such varied backgrounds. I'm actually a lawyer by training. I actually went to law school to be a sports lawyer. <laughs> sports lawyer. So, okay, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, a, I'm a Florida girl. I was raised in Florida while not born here. And um, when I finished law school at Florida State University, I came back to Palm Beach County uh, to uh, work for a larger law firm uh, and, and ended up not being a sports lawyer, but I ended up being uh, like a golf course, going into golf course development. So real estate, land development, um, very early on realized I didn't want to stay in, in private practice. And so I left private practice after doing some local government work as well and uh, worked for the city of West Palm Beach for five years when it was undergoing a massive redevelopment phase. So as a very young lawyer, got tons of experience in land development and um, local politics. So uh, in 1999, I decided that it was time to figure out where I really wanted to have my career and really didn't know a lot about FPL and certainly didn't know anything about Next Era Energy. Um, but there was a spot opened in the law department here. And in 1999, there were 18 in-house lawyers and now we have well over 100. So that gives you a, an example of how we've grown as a company. Um, but I started doing work for both FPL here in Florida, the regulated entity, um, as we were undergoing a growth phase of generation and modernizing our plants as well as developing wind and solar farms all over the country. Our unregulated business is NextEra Energy Resources, and we are the largest generator of renewable energy, wind and solar energy in the country. And so um, a lot of that led to using my skills that I had developed in local politics, how to navigate permitting, you know, how to understand um, local politics that really, really governs a lot of what we do. You know, everyone talks about federal and state, but so much of our operations happens at the very local level. And, you know, we operate in 43 out of 67 counties here in Florida um, and serve over 130 cities. So there's a lot of local permits and politics 
that we have to navigate as a company. So that's how I ultimately ended up in the role as an officer, vice president of external affairs um, back in 2008. And, um, you know, our company is growing and evolving and, and very innovative. So just like that, my role in my group has really evolved and grown into so many different things other than just a small external affairs team at the way it started in 2008. Yeah, I mean, uh, just to give our audience a bit of background, um, you know, Pam and I got connected through a, through a mutual friend, actually someone that works, works for us. And uh, one of the most fascinating things I thought was this incubator, 35 mules that you guys, that falls inside of your, your sort of scope of economic development and you're championing, you know, small companies uh, ranging in energy and technology and, and figuring out ways where they can uh, you know, add value to the state. I thought it was one of the most interesting things. I got a chance to meet your team. Um, I thought it was fascinating. So uh, yeah, you guys are pretty innovative. That actually kind of leads me into a little bit of the, when I think of Nextera and I think of your organization, I think of like the Google of utilities, right? You guys have really kind of branded yourselves as like kind of tech friendly, ahead of the curve, whether it was on the renewable side or just how you do things. Like what about, what is it about Nextera specifically that allows you to um, have that culture, maintain that culture. And is that something that you saw evolve during your time or has it always been that way? You know, I think the answer is a little bit of all the above. So, um, you know, if you go back to the 80s, um, we were the first company in this country that won the Deming Award, which is a Japanese award for quality improvement. And um, I wasn't here at the time. I was very young, <laughs> but um, they uh, it, it was it totally changed the processes and the way we did business. And I really think that that has been part of our DNA for a very long time. I mean, we were part of the first, you know, rocket that went to space in the 60s. We powered that. So, I mean, there was innovation going on at our company for a very long time. Um, with that said. Um, I do think we have exponentially evolved over the last 20 years. And, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I would tell you that I think the culture here is very different from other, quote, traditional utilities, because the way we are um, culture, the way our culture runs is we are looking to disrupt ourselves. And, you know, so I think um, if we are recognized, for example, we are now recognized as the most reliable utility. FPL is the most reliable utility in the country and have been for the last five years because of a lot of investments that we made that other utilities didn't make and smart technology and hardening and so many other things. Um, but, you know, we don't have to do that. We're regulated. All we have to do is, is match our revenue requirements and, and we're good. But that is not the culture of our company. The culture of our company is if we're recognized as number one, the industry, well, now we got to beat ourselves. And so, you know, we're not happy. We would not be undertaking the, um, well, I'll give you some examples. You know, back in 2000, um, regulators didn't tell us to do this, but we made a decision to wean off oil. And we were the largest user of oil in America. We were using over 40 million barrels a year. And all of it was coming from overseas. And we made the decision to, you know, make our, you know, use uh, new technology for our power plants. We converted to natural gas. Um, we even, we were even sued about it from, from different groups saying, well, don't spend the money now. 
You know, you don't have to, don't spend the money now. But we knew we could operate those plants more efficiently. We didn't have a crystal ball, but we knew that natural gas was definitely gonna be more of a future than, than oil. And, you know, in the process, we saved our customers $11 billion over and above the cost of the plants. And we made the, we operate those plants so much more efficiently. And we created a huge tax base in every community where we did it. And we reduced emissions by 50%. So, you know, those were the win-win-wins that we, um, you know, and, and, and we don't have to use, now we, now we use 150,000 gallons a year. We're down to nothing. And we, we do that because we have to and required by law. So that was a huge, that was an over a 99% reduction off use of foreign oil. Um, but, you know, we could have stopped there and said, hey, we're good. You know, we're at the top of our industry. Um, but we also believe, we, we were a big believer that reducing carbon emissions was a priority long before the discussion that's going on now. And so we made a, a, an investment in solar and it started back in 2009. We got special legislation to allow us to build three plants that, you know, they were not cost effective, but we needed to build those first plants to learn how to make them cost effective. So um, I was actually part, I was actually leading the development team at the time in 2015, where we actually built the first three cost effective solar plants, meaning that was the best technology for the cheapest power to give our customers. And we we could have sat back and said it's too expensive, but we drove the cost down. We found land that we already owned. We found it located next to transmission. All of that greatly reduced the cost of the project that helped pave the way for what now where you have the largest solar growth going on in the country with what we call our 30 by 30 plan. Our commitment to build uh, 30 million solar panels in Florida by 2030. And um, right now we have 50 solar energy centers in operation. Those are 75 megawatt projects. Um, and we're going to beat that 30 by 30 plan. We're going to have it all done by 2025. So, you know, that is really helping our country, you know, doing our part to get to, to real zero emissions because all of these plants are completely emissions free and they're cost effective for our customers. But again, you know, we've been working on that now for about 10 years. Um, we're not going to stop there. And so we've been leading the way on green hydrogen technology. And so we are about to start a pilot at our Okeechobee plant where we also have a solar energy center where the solar center will generate the power to perform the electrolysis process, which divides the hydrogen from the oxygen. And then that hydrogen will be fed into our natural gas plant there that will help it run in a completely emissions-free way. And so if you've listened to our CEO on investor calls or things like that, he really believes that green hydrogen is the key to unlocking 100% uh, carbon-free power in this country. And so we want to lead the way on that. And the only way you do that is if you disrupt yourself because no one's making us do it. And we've, we truly believe you have to find ways to make it economic. And that's why we've been able to deliver power that is consistently well below the national average in terms of cost. Um, you know, making smart, disciplined, long-term investments, which is what we've done with our grid as well. You know, um, a little bit of a reaction, but back in 0405, it was the first time we got slammed in Florida with so many hurricanes. 
Um, and I'm a Floridian since I was four, and it was the first time we had ever seen something like that. But we realized that with temperature change, climate change, you know, the intensity of these storms was changing and our grid needed to be strengthened. And so we made investments in hardening the grid so that we've made great improvements with replacing old um, wood poles with concrete poles, which is huge when it comes to a hurricane or even just bad weather days. We've um, invested in um, much more aggressive uh, vegetation management. You know, we're a lot more aggressive than a lot of our um, sister companies in terms of, of, you know, inspecting poles and vegetation. So we're very aggressive with that. That has helped our reliability. And, and then in investing in smart technology. So we have almost 200,000 smart devices on our grid throughout Florida. And that has um, really honestly changed the way we do business. It has given us so much data. The, the knowledge that we have ahead of time helps us significantly prevent outages before they even happen. And then when outages do happen, we have immediate information. It used to be we'd have to wait to get a phone call to know if something was out. And now we, not only do we know about it, but we know, we know how we're going to fix it. We know what we need to do. And it, all that reduced costs for our customers. Um, and then we even use drones and robots. So after a hurricane, being able to use our drone teams now, instead of driving trucks out that can't get to the backyards, our drones do quick flights and we have information on how we're going to restore. Again, great strides in efficiency, cost, and um, ability to serve our customers better. And, and I think we're kind of leading the way in using that technology, um, and, but we continue to look for new ways. And we look for, like, our culture here is how to be innovative. So we host competitions among different business units on ideas of how we can be more innovative. So we encourage employees to come up with new ideas, which led to 35 mules, Tej, that you mentioned, um, where we now host, host uh, entrepreneurs from all over the country who, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be energy related, but we want to encourage them to think out of the box. And it's great for our employees to uh, see how these entrepreneurs think out of the box, because that's how we want to think for our business. Pam, I was just excited to hear what a corporate culture where we're number one, so we have to beat ourselves, you know, and uh, just everything seems to drive you that way. Yeah, it really is a culture that has taken the whole company, you know, every group. I mean, I, I oversee government relations, economic development, but we have that culture in my group. And, you know, how can we do things better? How can we, uh, how can we uh, give our customers more information? How can, we, how can we do better? It's really, you know, never being satisfied. I think that, that you know, to kind of Phil's point, that's definitely something like we, we obviously in in our space see um, a cross section of of different types of companies in the oil and gas space and the utility space and, and culture is something that um, is not the easiest thing, especially at your size to to you know implement, maintain all that stuff. So you guys have done that really really well, Pam. Just a real quick, obviously the world is in a bit of chaos right now with what's happening overseas. Um, with with everything that's going on with with Ukraine and Russia, do you does the organization look at that and say, okay, every decision we made over the last 10 years to wean ourselves off of, of, of oil worked, this is great? Um, or are you also now looking at the situation and saying, okay, all of what's happening over there is there's 
different types of dislocation. There's other things now that we can focus on to sort of hedge against that as a U.S. focused utility. Like what, what have the kind of next era conversations been around this instability? You know, so I think first and foremost, what you mentioned, Tej, I think, you know, it kind of validates our clean energy plan. You know, I think every president over the last 60 years has talked about energy independence. And, um, you know, and I think uh, our approach, you know, we have a 10 year site plan. So we look 10 years in advance and we've never tried to rely on one technology or one fuel. So, you know, we've we have nuclear in our system and we have the option to build more nuclear. Um, You know, it's not the one we're doing right now, but we certainly have the option. Um, You know, natural gas is a big part of our portfolio. Um, You know, we've we've eliminated coal from our system here in Florida. Um, We've shut those plants down. We've purchased coal plants and shut them down and we're serving those customers with clean energy. Um, You know, but, you know, at the same time, it's a global economy and, you know, uh, what's happening with Russia and Ukraine is, is a global issue. And so getting, you know, and, and then COVID on top of that, I mean, the supply chain issues are real and it's something that factors into everyone's business. And so we're building solar, uh, solar centers all over the country, um, not just here in Florida, but at a very rapid speed and, you know, having access to solar panels and other, um, you know, other materials that we need for our business is a real issue. It's not, it's not just fuel, um, but fuel is a big, a big driver for a lot of, a lot of industries. But, um, but I think overall our philosophy, um, it, it, it validates us a little bit. Like, you know, this country's in, I think the world is going to be struggling for a while with what's going on in the aftermath. But, um, you know, I think, if you're going to be anywhere, you'd want to be in this country <laughs> with how, how we're teed up. And um, so we all have to kind of take it as it comes a little bit, right, and have to see how things play out. But, you know, another thing that we've been super focused on is electrification, you know, and, and EVs. And um, and FPL is also taking a lead on that. Um, you know, we're installing infrastructure all over the state and to encourage that. And um, and we've been a national leader in battery storage. And so all these things are components of our business that will help our entire economy. Actually, I want to back up for just a minute. I'm really curious about this corporate culture. And you said you have it even within your areas. And just uh, no matter what you do, you have uh, the su- successful ones build something into their culture. Uh, how? So talk to me just a little bit, you know, what's your strategy for building that and getting that out to everybody and getting their buy-in and maintaining it? You, are you talking about employees or are you talking about yeah, our, our yeah, customers? Well, we'll start with employees and then I'll come back to customers in a minute. You know, um, I think that's when leadership really matters is building a culture, you know, and um, I go back, I started this company with Jim Broadhead and then Lou Hay and, and then Jim Robo, who just retired, and now John Ketchum, who I've come through the ranks with. So I think we've been fortunate to have leaders who have a vision and, um, and who gave permission, gave permission uh, to push back and think out of the box. You know, you hear a lot of times in corporate culture where you know, you just have to keep your mouth shut because if you say the wrong thing, you can get fired. Or, you know, if your idea is on the losing end, you're done. 
And I think our leadership has really walked the walk. You know, someone could say something to them that they completely disagree with. I'll even share when I was heading up development, we would present ideas to the operating committee and there'd be a huge discussion and my team would be like very apprehensive. And I said, this is when we should be excited. You know, if, if, if people are arguing over our, you know, our subjects, it means everyone cares and it, and it matters. And we have some of the brightest minds in our company working here. And the fact that they're debating it, um, we're going to get to the right solution. We're going to get to the right end game because we have so many smart people, you know, debating and, and arguing in a healthy way of what the right approach is. And so I think that all in team approach and everyone brings different skill sets to the table. So I think we've had CEOs who, as smart as they are, they also know to recognize and listen to their teams and to evaluate it from all aspects. Um, I get to be, have a huge seat at the table from the local political perspective. And, you know, a lot of companies would never take that into account. But sometimes we get to, you know, I can add something that might tweak something that gets it to a little bit better of an end solution or we handle things better um, because different voices get to have input into to the decisions. So I think that has been a big part of our culture. And, you know, we have, um, you know, we have a, a competition, like I said, we have a competition every year where business units come up with new ideas and it's a contest and the senior executives, you know, these are, these are ideas that save our company millions of dollars in efficiencies. And we end up adopting most of them, but there's a winner. And then that, the, that team that's a winner, they get a prize. And, we have a shark, you know, a similar shark tank type of thing where employees, we have very innovative employees and they have their own ideas and they get to present them. And so we try to we try to really have a corporate of, a corporate culture of engagement from the ground up, from the top down. And it's not just the top leaders. It's, you know, it's management and, it, you know, it's, it's business unit heads, it's group leaders. And um, and also, I think because we foster a, a, a an, an inclusionary, an inc a, you know, inclusion, inclusiveness is very important to our company and a big focus. So um, everyone feels like they have a voice and everyone's treated with respect. That's one of our core values. And I think it has really, you know, that's not something that you create in a day, but it's certainly something that over the 23 years that I've been here has just really defined who we are. Yeah, that's great. That's a lesson for managers all the way down to the field crews. What? A, yep, it is. Good lesson. It is. So uh, that's internal. Um, you work in a, where the customer is pretty important. You know, how do you maintain dialogue with them? What's the expectations, hopes, uh, as you do work with them? You know, the short answer is every way that we possibly can. <laughs> Um, I think that the goal is to over communicate. Um, but I'll tell you, just like we learned from the 0405 storms that we needed to harden our grid. Um, when I took this role on um, in 08, we were going through uh, a rate case. And those are typically things that get statewide attention. And, you know, if you remember in 09, when the hearings were happening, that was in the foreclosure crisis. And um, we were very much attacked for the rate request. And what we learned very quickly was that our customers didn't understand our business or what we were doing because the purpose of that rate increase was so that we could continue with the modernizations that were ultimately going to push bills down and 
clean up our emissions. So it was a win-win. And of course, first of all, nobody believed us. Um, but in fact, bills did go down um, because, you know, fuel is a pass-through. And so even though the base rates go up, the fuel went down so much more dramatically that it was a decrease. Um, so, so, you know, we needed to do a better job at communicating with our customers. And so I don't oversee the, the marketing communications part, but we work so hand in hand with that team. So there's that piece of it. But really what it came down to was engaging with our stakeholders and being more aggressive with our outreach. And so one of the things I did was I created what my team lovingly calls the public engagement program. And, in, you know, my external affairs team, they're the ones that are on the ground in every community that we serve. Um, you know, they're in charge of making sure that our local elected stakeholders understand our business. They answer questions and all that kind of thing. Well, I didn't want to just rely on the fact that they might see them in passing or at a, a chicken dinner. So, you know, they now track every month, every discussion they've had with every elected official um, about our business. And, you know, we keep like an, an ongoing talk points, you know, um, last year it was our rate case. Um, this year it's our green hydrogen pilots. Um, it might have been legislative session, the things that were a priority and why we were doing them like net metering. Um, so it's an evolving uh, list of topics. But my team is actually responsible for letting me know every month how many stakeholders they've talked to about these topics. And, you know, and it's, it's part of their, you know, their metrics that they're, they're evaluated on. So that's just one way. I mean, you know, we use all the social media and communications. We, we, ha we tap into our retiree program. We, we've, um, we've taken the retiree program away from HR. It's not just about their benefits. And we host events to keep them connected like an alumni group. But we also make sure that they know about what's going on because, we have a company where people come here and they stay for a long time typically, and they're very loyal. And if they know what's going on, they can talk to their families and their neighbors and their friends about it. So we even have a group that goes out and talks to homeowners associations and community organizations. People volunteer for this and they get some training, you know, with, um, you know, with our, with our speakers bureau and, um, and it gives them public speaking experience. Um, and it gives them a better sense of what's going on, you know, um, in, in our company. And then they go out and when, when they're called upon. And that could be on a Saturday or a, an evening. It's usually in off hours. But, um, you know, we try to, top, we try to tap into um, every aspect of a community. And, you know, we have, we have over 260 uh, employee, executives serving on boards in our communities and, you know, so we try to make sure that we're very visible and present throughout the community. And so that's the way we do it in the physical way. I just wanted to ask a real quick question on that. So that certainly, I think you guys have unlocked like the Nextera side of it. So anybody that's a, a Nextera employee that's touching a homeowner, but you guys have such a big footprint and you utilize third-party partners. How do you ensure that the, the brand messaging is is translated effectively to like your partners as well so that when they're you know in your footprint and they're operating that they're doing so at the standard that you want them to do so well you know that's a challenge because we have a lot of vendors and so that is a challenge but we do um you know we do work with our vendors and they are required to assign a code of conduct 
So for all of our suppliers that they have to read and sign and they have to do that before they undertake any work with us. So does that does that ensure that everything's being followed? You know, there's still you know, we try to talk to them. Um, we really like to hire local when we can. You know, we try to support the local environments and, and an inclusive environment. But, um, you know, it, it's a challenge because we work with so many vendors. And, you know, you can see it during hurricane season when we're doing restoration activities. And, you know, um, you, you can tell when, when vendors or FPL employees who, have, who understand our business, sometimes there's a difference. You know, sometimes there's a difference. But our... Our leaders try to work with them even when they come in. You know, we have relationships with utilities across the country that, that come and, and provide aid to us when we need it. And we really appreciate that they do that. Um, and we try to talk to them about what the expectations are. Um, and so that's those are the ways that we, we try to make sure that even vendors are living to our ideals. We're, I was just going to say, we're in the uh, vegetation management. It's my area of interest. And for a lot of utilities, the single... Uh, the, most of the face-to-face contact may come from uh, the people that are trimming the trees or pruning the trees, people that uh, just climbed out of a tree maybe, and probably that tree pruning may be in their skill sets, public relations isn't. So it has to be quite a challenge to get them uh, qualified or able to carry on your message. I didn't do really, uh, Phil, the, 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 the appropriate justice. So Phil, just to give you a, a quick snapshot of Phil's background, you know, he was the president of a, of basically a vegetation management consultancy for, for multiple decades, um, had built a very large practice, had taken it overseas as well. So he had been working with all types of utilities. He's a PhD from University of West Virginia in this space. So he kind of saw the evolution of, of, um, the growth of, you know, infrastructure management, vegetation management. So, uh, he's seen a lot of life cycles of the industry. And so, you know, he and I, um, we talk a lot about, you know, the different things that we're observing uh, in the industry today. Um, one of the trends that we we talk a lot about is, you know, shifts in demographics, you know, or the underrepresentation of, let's say, women in, in just the utility industry overall. So um, obviously, as somebody who's a successful woman and a great uh, ambassador um, for for just successful people, but also successful women, like what are some of the areas that you still see as a challenge today? And, and how are you sort of attempting to maybe champion that? And how's Nextera trying to champion that? Like, is that even something that's a focus? It absolutely is a focus. You know, I think, um, we've, uh, we've had a huge focus on, um, racial equity and just equity in general within our company. It was very important to uh, Jim Roba, our outgoing CEO, and it will continue to be under John Ketchum's leadership. Um, you know, yes, I think it's well well recognized that you know that the, the the STEM-based areas have um, less women, and so we've put a big focus. At, we've leveraged the community engagement, community relations piece of my business unit to really get out there and support um, STEM opportunities around the state to encourage women and minorities to get into these fields. And there's a huge focus, you know, half of our college summer interns were women and minorities last summer out of the 250 that we had. So there's a huge push there. And, you know, the, the the cultural piece of that, what I mentor a lot of women 
is that um, I think women should not look at jobs how their predecessor did them. And I think there's still a lot of social expectations as a woman, you know, will you be able to adequately care for your children? And, you know, how does that impact your family and your husband? And can you do it? And, you know, I use my own career as an example, you know, this role, when it was first available, I talked to the, the, the person that was retiring and he's like, you know, you're going to need to live in Miami. You're going to need to be out to dinner seven nights a week. And I immediately recoiled and said, well, I can't do that. I have a three-year-old at home. And, you know, I realized maybe a month after that, what was I thinking? I can define how that job looks. And, and so when the job became available four years later, you know, I, you know, when they, when they tapped me on the shoulder, I said, absolutely. (laughs) And I think that's, I think, I think, you know, women, you know, need to be bolder and to recognize that they, they can, they can manage, you know, the things that they want in their life and, you know, in their careers. And, you know, in a male dominated industry, it's, there's most likely there's not going to have been a woman predecessor to emulate yourself. You're going to have to chart your own path. And some, and in some ways that's actually good because you get to define it rather than meeting someone else's expectations. So at least that's how I viewed it. I'm the oldest in my family of three girls. So, (laughs) so I come with that, that, with that attitude. (laughs) That fits your out of the box culture. Oh yeah. No no question. Well, um, I guess before we wrap up here, Pam, there's one, obviously like down in Florida, storms are just, uh, you know, they're a, they're a scary element of, of being down there. Right. So huge, obviously impact to, you know, infrastructure. And I know you guys, in addition to hardening, have a lot of other initiatives in play, but one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about specifically was just the huge migration. Like I, I moved to Texas and uh, Texas, Florida, you know, no state tax, um, and, and really great places to live. Uh, Florida obviously has, uh, the, you know, the weather and the lifestyle, um, so you're going to see a huge migration of business and individuals. Like, is this system, is the next era footprint, you know, is it prepared to handle such a large influx of residents? And um, are you guys able to keep up with, uh, with your infrastructure needs? Short answer, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're how, like, we're ready. Yeah. How we, how we get there, though, is, you know, in, a, in the utility industry, the infrastructure is so big and capital intensive that, you know, you have to plan so well in advance. So we actually file a 10-year site plan every year with the Public Service Commission, and that looks 10 years ahead. So that's how we plan. It doesn't mean it doesn't get tweaked along the way. Um, But, you know, um, we look at everything from, you know, the things that we've talked about on this podcast about strengthening our system and converting to cleaner cleaner, um, energy generation, um, but also addressing the growth. And we know that the growth projected for our service territory within the next four years um, is big enough to be the fourth largest utility in Florida, just the growth that we have to serve in our service territory. You know, we expect another half a million, half a million customers um, in the next, you know, four years, let's call it. And so we are, you know, and, and, and then there's climate change. You know, there's there's sea level rise and there's, um, there's storm surge here in Florida that all those things we, we take into account as we um, prepare for our new generation. So for example, you know, meeting the wind loading standards here in Florida for solar fields is, is very different than in other parts of the country. 
And so we, you know, the infrastructure that we are planning for addresses all that and has the capacity for all that. So, you know, some of the transmission line connections that we've built to connect, you know, we just acquired the, the uh, Gulf Power Company in the Panhandle. And they are now part of FPL, and we're doing a lot there to increase their improve their reliability and clean their energy mix. But we've also built a, a Northwest Resiliency Line that will provide huge reliability benefits um, to that area. And um, and our transmission capabilities that we're building to take on more solar, um, you know. And so the early solar projects and battery projects helped us evaluate, um, you know what was needed and, and how we should design those lines to best serve our customers of the future. So it's really long-term planning and a recognition that investment is needed. Um, and when you look at, at it from that perspective, um, we're ready. And, you know, we design things coastally. Um, you know, we, we build our, our transformers on higher pads because we know that when storm surge comes, you know, we want to keep them. Um, you know, how we build our underground, how we do our undergrounding to, to try to protect it in terms of flooding to reduce the impacts. All of those things are taken into account as well as the capacity needs yep. to, to meet the, the, the growth here in Florida, right. which is dramatic. Yeah. It's, it's, oh, yeah. Growth here in Florida is dramatic. Oh, yeah. I mean, just from my personal network, uh, former colleagues, you know, from New York and all the all the movements, uh, offices, businesses, you know, you and I have talked about this offline uh, as well. It's incredible. And, uh, you know, we're obviously excited about it. I'm down there all the time, as you know. And so, um, but, but, you know, I guess that brings us to a bit of an end here, Pam. I, I could, I could do this for hours. Um, I know you don't have hours um, because you're very difficult to pin down. So that we're greatly appreciative, um, you know, of you carving out some time for us, Pam. And uh, I definitely look forward to uh, seeing you down in Florida soon. Me too. Very it's much nice so, Pam. Yeah. yeah. Nice meeting you. I'm one of your snowbirds, so yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm getting out well. before storm season. Yeah. Best yeah, time exactly. to be here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank um, you, Pam. for having me. That's it for this episode of Trees and Lines, brought to you by Iapetus Holdings. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. If you have any questions or comments on any of our episodes or ideas for topics or guests, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us at treesandlines at iapetusllc.com. We'll chat with you soon.